podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Tuesday, the 22nd of June. We're brought to you, as always, by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network. allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, or use Now TV outside the UK if Brexit is blocking you from doing so. Also keeps your data safe. Check out libertyshield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, four games in Euro 2020 yesterday. Ukraine out, Austria through. Austria win 1 0. Finally, finally, we saw sense from Austria's manager, Franco Foda, going to a back four, playing 4-2-3-1, playing players in their actual positions and getting the best out of them. Stefan Leiner back in at right back, rather than playing as a wing back. David Alaba at left back, rather than in the centre of the defence, where, to be fair, he is good. But David Alaba was the best left back in the world for a number of years. It makes sense to get him there. Uh, Grilich comes back into midfield and forms a double, double pivot with Javer Schlager. Schlager is one of the better defensive midfielders in the tournament. He's been excellent so far. Conrad Leimer, Marcel Sabitzer and Christoph Baumgartner as the three behind Marco Arnautovic. Really good balance now. Unfortunately, Baumgartner did pick up an injury. Fingers crossed he's okay and will be back for the next the next round. But Austria looked much, much better. Ukraine, to their credit, played well. Couldn't really create a whole bunch. Very, very disappointing to see Viktor Shankov not start any of these games. He is Ukraine's best player. He came into the tournament with an injury. And Shevchenko just stuck with what was working for him. It's understandable. But it would have been really nice to see him play. There's a lot of talent in that Ukrainian team. Zabarni, the young centre-back, he will be coming to a major top-five league. Matvienko, I think, can play in pretty much any league, but he signed a new long-term deal to stay at uh, at Shakhtar. He can play centre-back or left-back. Very talented player. Michaelenko, the left-back, is exceptional. I think there'll be a lot of clubs interested in him this summer. Shaparenko in midfield is quality. We've seen what Zinchenko can do in the Premier League. Obviously much better in midfield than he is in a back three. Everybody knew about Yarmolenko. Most people knew about Malinovsky. Yaromchuk, though, I think is the one that kind of caught some people off guard. Maybe that they weren't expecting to be so good. He's had a very impressive tournament. And you would imagine 
that there will be interest in him this summer. Um, he's currently playing in Belgium against. He's had two good seasons back to back. He's gotten better each of the last four years. I would be surprised if he's still there come the start of the new season. I think any team looking for a target man who can play up front or as part of a two, who's very, very selfless, happy to work off the ball, but can offer quality on the ball, would be well poised to look at him. If Wolfsburg lose Veghorst this summer, which has been rumoured, he would be a good replacement. He's only 25 years of age, he'll be 26 in November, entering his prime. I think he's primed to go up another level. Showed in these Euros, fearless, and more than capable of occupying two centre-backs by himself. Works exceptionally hard, runs those channels with real conviction. Doesn't just make the runs for the sake of making them, runs the channels and demands the ball. It's what you like to see in a big centre-forward like that. Again, like I say, there will be clubs showing interest in him. It's a shame for Ukraine that they've gone out. But I think there's a lot more to come from this team. I think Shevchenko has shown that he's a more than capable manager, um, especially at the international level, whether he's the same at club level. We would have to wait and see when he gets to that stage of his career. But it's a young, relatively young Ukrainian team. Lots and lots of potential to get better. Not many players that you'd look at and say they're coming towards the end. Uh, Siderchuk maybe in midfield, Yarmolenko, they're both 30-31. Malinovsky's only 28. I think he's got plenty of, plenty of time left in him. Um, wouldn't be a huge fan of Karaveyev, who played right back, but he's more of a midfielder. He plays in midfield at club level, so he was a little bit out of position. They've got two good young goalkeepers. Uh, Trubin, who was on the bench, who is the first choice for Shakhtar now, and Lunin, who plays for Real Madrid. He's the backup to um, Courtois. He needs to get a move and get playing somewhere. But between those two, and there's a couple of other talented players in the squad, and the ones I've been through, plus consider Kovalenko, who didn't get to go because he was injured, there's a lot of talent there. Ukraine are going to be quite good now for the next four or five years at a minimum. Um, so they go out with no shame. In the other game in that group, the Netherlands beat North Macedonia 3-0. North Macedonia, very unlucky. Goal disallowed, very, very close call on the offside. It was the correct call based on the current rules, but, you know, however, they also hit the post. Really unfortunate. Looked like they were going to cause... Uh, Dutch real problems I thought that um, Trzkowski coming in off the left looked really impressive now he's played well across the tournament a little bit of a change in system this time for North Macedonia but I thought he looked quite good him and Pandev great understanding very experienced players Elmas coming from the number 10 role prompting and probing but once the Dutch sort of woke up, which happened on about 25, they just looked like a different class. Daniel Malin into the team to replace Veghorst up front with Depay. That link-up was just tremendous. Both of them willing to make runs. Both of them with inventiveness, creativity, great dribbling, good pace. 
want to get their shots off. Ginny Wijnaldum then in behind, just doing very subtle Ginny Wijnaldum things, finding himself in the right position, timing his runs into the box. Memphis scores the first, put on a plate for him by Daniel Mallon, and then Ginny gets two to make it 3-0, uh, 51 and 58 minutes. I thought the Dutch looked excellent. I thought they looked really balanced. De Jong and Gravenberch in midfield is what a lot of Dutch fans have been crying out to see. It worked. I, I still think he'll play uh, that De Boer will play Martin Darun over Gravenberch, but this was a sign of you know of their future. Um, Denzel Dumfries again, really impressive down the right. Strange that we have not yet seen Wyndale uh, at left back. Now he didn't even make the bench yesterday, um, so he's obviously not at all in De Boer's plans. Van Aanholt is very much first choice. Uh, really good to see Cody Gakbo come off the bench. Nice to see uh, Jurian Timber get more minutes. Would have liked to have seen Coop Miners come on. Big, big fan of him. Thought he could have offered something a little bit different in midfield or even in the middle role in the back three. But this Dutch team, that's the best performance they've had of the three. They go through comfortably nine points, three ahead of Austria, eight goals scored, two conceded. And they will wait for a third-place team. The winner of their round of 16 game will play the winner of Wales versus Denmark. Denmark with an incredible performance yesterday, wiping away the Russians 4-1, scoring some great goals. It must be said, great, great goals. Darmsgaard's opener was fantastic to shift the ball out of his feet and bend it into the top corner from 20 yards out. Yusuf Poulsen taking advantage of some dreadful defending or, you know, a dreadful giveaway in the defensive third by the Russians. Does his best to miss it, it must be said, but does manage to score. Uh, Zuba scores a penalty on 70 after Yannick Vestergaard does a Yannick Vestergaard thing. Um, not sure what more we can expect from Vestergaard. Andreas Christensen with the, the sweetest struck ball you are ever going to see. That ball is what you'd call stayed hit. Keeper had no chance. It, it You watch the replay and it's, it's well within the goalkeeper's reach, but it's hit that hard and there's that much movement on it. He just, he has no hope at all. It's an incredible goal. And then Joachim Mile uh, making it four on 82. Counter-attack goal. The Russians had committed players up. Uh, the Danes broke. Mal cut inside onto his preferred right foot off from left wing back and slotted in the bottom corner. And um, between the goals, the atmosphere, what it meant to the players, what it meant to the fans, what it means to this tournament, I have to say, I think this goes down as one of the great moments in European Championship history. To see this Danish team overcome what happened to them in the first game, then being forced to finish that game, it, it, it's phenomenal. The, the mental toughness of that team. And you look through the team with Kasper Schmeichel, Simon Kjær, Christensen, Thomas Delaney and Hoisberg, leaders in that team, men in that team, 
grown-ups in that team. Massive credit to them. Massive, massive credit to them, to their manager, and, and to their fans. Because the atmosphere the fans have created at the parking, I think has been the best in the tournament. They haven't been allowed to have full capacity, but 23, 24,000 people in a 40,000 stadium making as much noise as 50,000 people made in Budapest. Really, really impressive. Really impressive stuff. Delighted that they're through. Um, and look, they'll fancy their chances against against Wales. They really will fancy their chances against, chances against the Welsh. And why wouldn't they? They may not have an individual as good as Bale now with Ericsson, uh, with Ericsson out. But man for man, I take their team over the Welsh. They've got some flaws. Vestigard is a weak link. Mal, though playing very, very well, is not a left wing back. He's a right wing back or a right back, but he's playing really well. I wouldn't be a huge Thomas Delaney fan, but he's a consistent, reliable 6.5 out of 10. Hoysberg's very good. My biggest outs would be up front. Braithwaite, Poulsen, I wouldn't be big fans, big fan of either of those. I do like what I see of Darmsgaard. But there's a togetherness and a belief now in this team that's going to be really, really tough to stop. Now, that game will take place in Amsterdam. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Welsh will will bring their fans, the, the Danes will bring theirs, and neither of them have anything to lose. Get out of the group stage. That's literally the mandate for both of these. Get out of the groups and then what happens, happens. That's one of the two round of 16 games that we know for certain is set. The other one is Italy versus Austria. Austria's reward for finishing second in their group is to play Italy and then know that if they get through, uh, they likely have Belgium. And if they get through, they potentially have France. So, you know, it's like a backhanded compliment. Last game yesterday, then, Belgium versus Finland. 2-0 for the Belgians, relatively straightforward. Finland tried their best, they just lacked the quality. Lukas Radetzky, who's had a good tournament, unfortunately with an own goal for the opener. Lukaku had had a goal disallowed. Uh, Lukaku then gets his goal on 81. Just pins the defender. It's really, really clever centre-forward play. Pins the defender, swivels his hips onto his right foot, opens his body up and slots at home. Really, really good goal. Lukaku looks sensational. Uh, absolutely in the running for player of the tournament so far. Obviously in the running for the golden boot. Eden Hazard back in the team. Kevin De Bruyne back in the team. Axel Witzel back in the team. Jeremy Doku gets a run. Going forward, Belgium are sensational. The talent level is unbelievable. Defensively, I have questions. now. They've gotten through this group unscathed, but you weren't exactly going up against a who's who of top-class attackers in this group. Uh, tougher, ta tougher tests will will arise. They've got a third-place team next, um, either from Group A, E, or F. And then, like I say, the winner of that takes on the winner of Italy versus Austria. The other teams who are currently through, Switzerland are through 
We don't know yet who they'll play. Um, like I said, Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands all through as winners. Wales, Denmark, and Austria through as runners-up. Switzerland are the only guaranteed uh, fourth, uh, third-place finisher so far. The Czech Republic are through and England are through. They're both guaranteed to finish in the top three in their group. And they'll have four points, so they'll have enough to get through. In all likelihood, you know, one is first, the other is second. Sweden are through. Um, and France are through. The French will likely top their group. They've got four points. They play Hungary in their... No, they play Portugal in their last game. You would expect them to beat Portugal, given what we saw of Portugal against the Germans. Sweden will play Poland. Um, I think it's fair to say that the Swedes will be strong favourites in that game, given how well they've played, but it, it'll be a tough game. Tonight we have two games. We have the Czech Republic against England. Obviously, that's the big one that everybody's looking forward to. England will be without Ben Chilwell. They'll be without Mason Mount. Both having to isolate after contact with Billy Gilmore, who tested positive for COVID. Makes little or no sense, considering none of the Scottish squad are having to do the same, despite having spent much more time in his company. Really bizarre decision. They may also, if England don't top the group, they may also miss the next game, the round of 16. Now, it gives Southgate an excuse. He won't have had Mason Mount. Uh, Chilwell is easily replaced by Luke Shaw, who's just a better player at this point in their careers. Um, there's a lot of clamour, obviously, that now Mount is out, that Jack Grealish should come into the team for today's game. We'll wait and see if that's what happens. Um, Danny Murphy is clamouring for Jordan Henderson to be brought back in. The team hasn't kicked a ball in a real game in four months, but Danny Murphy wants him back in the team. Says he's really good at leading the press. Um, it's been a couple of years since Jordan Henderson led the press. Uh, he says he takes risks. I don't think he's watched Jordan Henderson play. Jordan Henderson's quite a risk-adverse player. It's a bizarre article by Danny Murphy. And we do always go by the rule that what Danny Murphy says, the opposite is true. Um... I think Henderson off the bench in this game is better. Get him on for the last 30 and then see how he is. And if he's ready to go in the round of 16, then you start him in the round of 16. I don't think you start him in this game. Because if you play him too much and he gets a setback, he's going to be out of the round of 16. He could be out of the quarterfinals as well. If you give him half hour, you can monitor him a little bit better. The game will have slowed down a little bit. It might be a little bit easier for him in that regard to come in and make an impact and, and manage himself through the game. Uh, England will need him in the round of 16. If you are changing one of the central midfielders, bring in Jude Bellingham. Bring in Bellingham for Rice. Go with Bellingham and Phillips. Play Foden as the 10. Sterling on the right. Sancho on the left. And um, Kane up front. Or Grealish as the 10 and leave Foden out of the team for a game. Now Kane hasn't played well details yesterday he hasn't played well in tournaments 
but he's going to be in the team because he's the captain. I don't see any circumstance in which he doesn't start. It would be nice to see Calvert-Lewin get a chance. Uh, hasn't played a minute yet. But look, Southgate can be brave today because England are through. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, they lose 2-0. The Scots win 2-0 and England finish third. Or they finish second on goal difference. Ahead of Wales on goal difference. Or ahead of Scotland on goal difference, sorry. Worst case scenario is they finish third. Best case, they finish first. They could finish second. Does it really matter? Should England really be worried? Like, if you look at the groups thus far, Italy have been, I think, the best team in the tournament. But should England really be scared of the Italians? Shouldn't England be looking at the Italians and thinking, right, they're not great at fullback. The centre-backs are quite old. Cialini's out. Yes, they're very strong in midfield. Yes, the attack is very good. But isn't our attack very good as well? Can't we go and cause them just as many problems? England have much better attacking options in terms of depth than anybody else that they could play in this game. Um... Like I said, Belgium's defensive issues would leave you concerned for them. Again, very strong in attack, decent in midfield. Not as good as Italy in midfield, probably better than Italy up front. The Netherlands, I mean, they're they're good. They're not great. De Ligt isn't in his best form. Other than Frankie, I don't know that there's anybody... I class as world class in the team Ginny's in great form, Depay's in great form, but they're not world class players you're not going to be scared of Sweden surely yeah France might worry you but we've seen with France that there's just times they don't turn up we saw Germany against France look very uninspiring and we saw what Germany did to, Port- to Portugal. We saw how weak Portugal can be defensively, how much they can be gone, and pace and movement kills them. You're not going to be worried by Spain. What are they going to do? Pass you to sleep and then score? England shouldn't be fearing anybody. From a talent point of view, from midfield on, England should be as good as anybody. The issues, obviously, are the goalkeeper and the centre backs, but Stones and Mings have done well so far. You've got Maguire to come back, you assume, at some point. Don't know if he'll be fit for this one, but... England shouldn't have fear. England should be experimenting in this game. They should believe that whatever team they put out can beat the Czechs. Schick is in great form. There's some quality players in the team. The ones we know. Sufal, Suchek. Good players. But you, you shouldn't be worried about playing them you should look at this as three points in the other game Scotland take on Croatia a win for either side is the only result that's of use if if it's a draw both sides will be out I think we're all hoping Scotland can pull this off get the win get through they're going to need to find a way to score goals though I'd, I'd, with Billy Gilmore out, I'd quite like to see them go 3-4-3 rather than 3-5-2. Get Armstrong and Frazier either side 
of um, of Che Adams. McGinn and McGregor in the centre of the park. Keep the back three the way it was. Wing backs the way they are. Just try and get more bodies in the box. Try and score some goals. It's probably the last hurrah for this Croatian team. Modric is 35. Perisic is 32. Uh, Vida's 32. Lovren's 31. What they'll be at the next World Cup. I know it's only 18 months away, but 18 months is a long time when you're 35. This Croatian team has been tremendous for a long, long time, but they've been really disappointing at this competition. A little bit lucky against the Czechs, even with the penalty that was given against them. They were still quite lucky to get a draw. They were outplayed. They obviously didn't turn up against England at all. They'll be the type that will go through. If they, if they get through, they'll be the type that can turn up for a big performance in the round of 16 and quarterfinals. That's what England should be. England should be a team that can turn up on the big occasion. But Southgate seems to have fear. And we've seen his comments about not wanting to play some of these younger players like Sancho and Saka because, I don't know, he says they don't have the experience. It's such nonsense. It's such absolute nonsense. If we think back to when Gareth Southgate really made his name, it was at Euro 96. And at Euro 96, the England starting 11 contained Gareth Southgate, Gary Neville, Darren Anderton and Steve McManaman. 4, 10, 10 and 11 caps. Respectively. Coming off the bench in that tournament, Steve Stone, Robbie Fowler, Nick Barnby, Saul Campbell. And Jamie Redknapp. None of them with more than 10 caps going into the tournament. So there's nine players that played a major part. Or Campbell didn't play a major part. I think he played about seven minutes. It's probably it's four starters. Stones, uh, Steve Stone played multiple games. Barnby played multiple games. Redknapp played multiple games till he got hurt. Fowler played multiple games. So eight guys that played medium-sized to large roles in that team that got to the semi-finals and lost on penalties, who went into the tournament with less than 10 caps. So I don't know what his argument is. It was fine when he benefited from it. Like, I don't imagine he was going to Terry Venables and saying, you know what, Terry, I don't think I should play in this game. I don't have any experience. It's just such nonsense. He didn't mind playing Reese James, who's got seven caps. Jaden Sancho was 19 caps. Phil Foden came into the tournament with six caps. Phil Foden's two months younger than Sancho. Coming into the tournament, Foden had one cap more than Saka. I don't understand Southgate's argument on this. Surely the experience of the other players you've got around is more than enough. Pickford had 31 caps coming in. Walker had 55. Stones had 42. Mings admittedly only had 10. 
Trippier had 28. Maguire has 32. Chilwell had 13. Rice had 17. Henderson had 59. Phillips only 8. Mount 16. But these are guys playing Premier League football week in, week out. Champions League football. They've got all the experience they need. And you've got your leaders. Henderson, Maguire, Stones, Pickford. You've got that experience. Spine, Kane up front, 56 caps. Raheem Sterling, 63 caps. I mean, Marcus Rashford has 43 caps. He's only 23 years of age. But he's played in a World Cup, Champions League, Europa League final. Twice, actually. Two Europa League finals. He's been around. He's done it. The, Sancho's played week in, week out for Dortmund. For what now? Four years? Three years as a first-team starter. One as a squad player, 12 appearances. He's got 140 senior games under his belt. He's played Champions League. He's proven at the highest level that he can do it. And yet, Gareth Southgate believes he doesn't have the experience required. It's just such a strange argument. I'd like to see a draw with the Czechs and England. Czechs then go through as group winners. And I think that's good for England because then they avoid... No, England need... If England win, they go to the bottom half the draw. I want England in the top half. Let's put England in the top half. Let's see them go through France and the winner of Belgium or Germany. Uh, Czechs atop the group, England second, hopefully the Scots third, and bye-bye Croatia. That's what I am hoping for. Uh, we'll take a break. We're back in a few minutes. Bye-bye. Right, welcome back. So, um, yesterday I may have gotten sidetracked talking about um, Spurs, Everton, Palace and their need to, you know, hurry up and get your managers appointed. Uh, it looks like West Brom have f pretty much finalised their new manager. It looks like it will be Valerian Ishmael coming from Barnsley after a really good run there where he took them from likely relegation battle into the playoffs. So it's an interesting appointment. It, it is a gamble. There, there can be no doubt that it's a gamble. Uh, he's He's been in management quite a while, 10 years almost, but he is still quite inexperienced. So he was with Hanover, he was the reserve team manager at Hanover for just under two seasons, 49 games in total. Then he took over Wolfsburg's reserves. Uh, he did a season there. He was appointed manager of Nuremberg. He was sacked after 14 games, uh, four wins, two draws, and eight defeats. He went back to Wolfsburg, was manager of their reserves for just over a season, and then he got promoted into the big job, became manager. Sacked after four months, 17 games, six wins, one draw, 
10 defeats. He next turned up in Cyprus, no, sorry, in, Gre- in Greece, uh, with Simimus, Apollon Simimus, one game in charge and sacked. Uh, but not sacked because of the fact they lost the game. Sacked because he fell out with the owner and, um, and was asked to leave. Then things turned around for him. He went to Austria and he took over at Lask. He replaced Oliver Glasner, who went on to take over at Wolfsburg, got them into the Champions League and has now gone to Eintracht Frankfurt uh, to be their new manager. 50 games in charge of Lask, 31 wins, 6 draws, 13 defeats, 102 goals scored, played really entertaining football, conceded 57, which isn't ideal. Um, But averaging two goals a game, playing good football, winning a lot of games. He left that job for reasons reasons known only to Lask. They decided they wanted somebody else, Dominic Talhammer. Didn't really tell Ishmael that this was happening and kind of negotiated with him and then binned Ishmael out the door. He was out of work for a few months, took over from Gerhard Struber at Barnsley. Struber, the analytics darling, who did a dreadful job at Barnsley. Um, Ishmael takes over and does brilliantly. Absolutely brilliantly. 44 games, 25 wins, 6 draws, 13 defeats, scored 56, conceded 43. His football is exciting. Defensively, there are question marks, which is weird because obviously he was a defensive player. Um, But he took them from relegation, potentially, into the playoffs. Sensational. Looks like West Brom are paying around two million to bring him in as manager. So that's a gamble. You want to have a lot of trust in him, and you want to know that you're not just going to bin him off after, you know, if there's a bad run of form, a bad start, whatever. You've got to be committed to him. You've got to find him the right director of football to work with. You've got to back him in the market. A lot of question marks over their squad. They obviously lost Gallagher, Maitland-Niles, Yakuzlu, Dianya, four lads they had in on loan. Will Pereira stay? Does Diangana want to stay? Does Carlin Grant want to stay? Neither of them were treated all that well by large Sam. So West Brom have work to do with the squad, but getting a new manager in is really, really important. It's taking you long enough, but thankfully it's done now. So, uh, Gautam, I think it was, somebody somebody on Twitter, I think it was Gautam, um, asked me if I could look back at the previous seasons of the Premier League and see if this is the longest we've gone into a summer with managerial vacancies still open like this. So, the first season of the Premier League, three managers were sacked at the end of the season. David Williams by Norwich, Don Howe by Coventry, Peter Shreves by Tottenham. All of those jobs were filled by June the 6th. Mike Walker took over at Norwich, Bobby Bobby Gould at Coventry, and Doug Livermore and Ray Clements in a dual manager role at Tottenham. Uh, That dual manager thing is always strange to me. It never really seems to work properly. Um, Right, 93-94. At the end of the season... Three managers were sacked. David Webb at Chelsea, John Lale at Ipswich, and Glenn Hoddle at Swindon. Well, he, did, he wasn't sacked. He left to go to Chelsea. 
And those those jobs were all filled by June the 4th. Spurs decided to make a change on June 19th. And on June 19th, appointed a new manager in Ozzy uh, Ardiles. Man City sacked Peter Reid on the 26th of August. And appointed a new manager on the 28th of August. So, you know, nice and quick there. Nothing... Nothing to worry about. Uh, 94-95. No changes that summer. No changes at all that summer. All the managers stayed. Uh, 95-96. Brian Horton out at City. Trevor Francis out at Sheffield Wednesday. Stuart Houston who had been the caretaker manager at Arsenal after the George Graham fiasco, his caretaker spell gone. Bruce Riuk left Bolton to take over at Arsenal. He left on the 8th of June, so that was late, but they had appointed new managers by the 20th. So by the 20th, all of those jobs were filled. Most of them were filled within two weeks of becoming vacant. Kenny Dalglish retired on the 25th of June. Uh, Ray Harford took over that day. Man City, sorry, I tell a lie. Man City's job stayed open for a while. So they sacked Brian Horton on the 16th of May and didn't appoint Alan Ball to the 2nd of July. So that's seven weeks, basically. Six, seven weeks uh, without a manager. So the Spurs fiasco is going on longer than that now. We're not there with the rest of them. But I, I still believe that Palace knew Hodgson was going months beforehand. Everton got blindsided, obviously. We can forgive them. Uh, 96-97. The longest gap was Southampton. Dave Merrington sacked on the 14th of June. Graeme Souness took over on the 3rd of July. So that's late again, but it's only just over the two weeks, three weeks or so there. Uh, nothing nothing drastic like what we're seeing at the moment. Graeme Souness resigned as Southampton boss on the 1st of June. Dave Jones appointed the 23rd of June. So that's that's three weeks. But again, it's a lot less than Crystal Palace. It's a lot less than than Spurs. Um, certainly a lot less than Spurs. 98-99. Ron Atkinson out as Sheffield Wednesday manager on the 17th of May. Didn't appoint Danny Wilson until the 6th of July. So that's quite a big gap as well. That's near on two months. That's not as bad as Spurs, but it is as it's worse than what we've seen with Crystal Palace. So I think what we're discovering is that there has been situations like this before, but in recent years, not so much. Most times, I'm moving up through the years here. It's a week or two weeks. It's not 
two months. I mean, for for the Spurs job to be two months is ridiculous. For the Crystal Palace job to be now, I think it's five weeks since the season ended. That's an awfully long time as well. But the, the Spurs one is just the strangest thing. That's a top five, or that's a, it's the sixth best job in the country. If we're all being honest, it's the sixth best job in the country. You've got Liverpool, United, Chelsea, City and Arsenal are better jobs than that one. But it is the sixth best job in the country, all things considered. And yet, they just cannot get it done. Now, this has to surely reflect really poorly on Daniel Levy. It has to reflect poorly on him. He had a tremendous run for a number of years. But I would say the last three years of his reign as chairman have done enormous enormous damage. Is it even three years? When did Pochettino go? It's two and a half years now, isn't it? Yeah, about two and a half years. Like, since then, it's just been a mess. They just don't seem to have any real vision. They bring in Paratici, but it's quite unclear as to what the parameters of his role are going to be. Why did they start the managerial search before they appointed him? Like, let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that Brendan Rodgers had accepted the job or he'd, you know, he'd been open to the job and they'd gone down the road with Rodgers and then brought in Paratici and maybe he didn't like Rodgers or Rodgers didn't like him. Maybe Rodgers would have said, no, I'm not working with a director of football. He's tried that nonsense before. Spurs should have appointed a director of football the day after they appointed Mourinho. Mourinho wanted one. And when Luis Campos became available, to not be the first phone call he received was just very, very poor management. At Man City again in 07-08 with managerial nonsense, uh, sacking Stuart Pearce on the 14th of May not appointing Sven Jorn Eriksson till the 6th of July. So before they got rich, City weren't very good at getting managers in promptly. Uh, now, obviously, they do it before before they get rid of the previous manager. Um, I just think with Spurs, like it's such a good squad. It doesn't need massive amounts. It's a versatile squad as well. You can go in there and play any shape you want. And you'll only really need two or three signings to be really good in that shape. Like, if you want to play a back three, you need two flanking centre-backs. You'll get away with Lloris, and Toby will be absolutely fine in the middle of a back three. But you'll have Doherty and Regulon. That's absolutely perfect. Heusberg and Endombele in the centre midfield, you'd be happy with that. And then Bergwijn, Kane and Son up front. How could you not be happy? Get those flanking centre-backs right, you're fine. If you want to play a back four, 
You need a right back and one centre back to partner Toby. Toby's not ideal in a four anymore, but he's still a very good player. And when he's fit, he can still read the game well above anybody else. Um, depending on your midfield midfield shape, you w- might want to bring in a starting central midfielder. But it's not massive surgery. You'll probably be fine. You'll probably get away with Heusberg and Endembele or Heusberg and Lacelso as a double pivot. You will most weeks anyway. If you want to play a three, you play the three of them. You can bring in Sissoko. You can bring in Winks. You can bring in Ollie Skip, who they still own. Plenty of wide options. You need a backup for Kane, but that's been an issue for years. That's another thing Levy's failed at. He's had multiple shots now at replacing, at, at getting a backup in for Kane. Always made a mess of it. He has to get this right because Paratici has signed a long-term deal. If this summer goes wrong, if the, if the managerial appointment goes wrong, I think it's Levy who will go. Fulham in 2010 lost Roy Hodgson on the 1st of July, didn't appoint Mark Hughes to the 29th of July. Just under a month. Not as bad as Palace. Not as bad as, nowhere near as bad as Spurs. Um, Yeah, like I say, if Levy gets this wrong, he has to be the one to go. I can't see how he'll survive not getting this absolutely right. Because as it is, I think there's a large portion of the Tottenham fan base that have already turned on Levy that have already decided this guy is not quite what we want anymore. You've delivered the stadium. You didn't deliver the silverware that you promised. You haven't reinvested properly in the team. A lot of the signings have been hit and miss. Managerial appointments obviously hit Pochettino uh, a miss with, with, with Jose. You go back before that. I mean, did, did anybody enjoy the tactics Timmy era other than him? Vias Boas won a lot of games but didn't deliver. Harry Redknapp got you top four and you were a different kind of club back then. That was before Spurs really grew into being one of the big six. At the time, they were still on the periphery of things. But I just, he has to get this right. I don't understand. I, I, I heard a rumour over the weekend that they were, they'd gone back for Conte. They'd gone back to make one last push at getting Conte. Doesn't seem to be ending in it. Um, but I, I know that's what I'd do. Before I appointed somebody that I wasn't certain of, I would be back making a big push. And here's the thing. Any manager taking over now knows they weren't first choice. Knows they weren't even fourth choice. They know they were well down the list. Now, some won't be bothered by that. Some will use it as motivation. But for for others that are, say, at a club, like Ajax aren't going to want to lose their manager now. Not when pre-season starts in a few weeks. It would have been fine if they'd have gone hell for leather after him at the end of the season. If they'd approached late last season and said, look, for this summer, we would like to speak to him. 
we're just being respectful and letting you know in advance. So if you want to plan, you know, this is what we'd like to do. But they just sat on their hands. They sat on their hands for months. Nagelsmann was gone. Everybody knew he was gone. Were you sitting on your hands waiting on Rodgers? Apparently they did ask Gasper. I mean, I, I would offer all the money to Gasparini. But with Gasparini, you're going to have to give him multiple years. Guaranteed. No interference. Do your thing. Get us where you can get us. We'll live with what happens in the short term. I think Spurs fans would put up with Gasparini, even if it meant they finish another seventh place or eighth place, because the style of football would be fantastic. And he, they know he'll eventually iron out the kinks in the system. That eventually, once it clicks, when he has the pieces in place, that team takes off. So I'm up now to the 18-19 season. And again, it is just those two Manchester City appointments that go over a month. Neither of them as bad as what we're currently seeing with Spurs. But they are comparable with Crystal Palace. But again, I don't believe they had the benefit of knowing for quite a while that Hodgson, that Hodgson was going, that like their manager at the time was going. Whereas Palace knew Hodgson was going. Palace knew they were getting rid of Roy Hodgson one way or another. So I, I genuinely think that the current Palace shenanigans and the Spurs calamity are the worst that we've seen in this regard. That's not to mention Fulham. Like, I still don't understand what Fulham are doing. They haven't yet cut ties with Scott Parker. My assumption is they're hoping to get compensation from Bournemouth. It's the only thing that makes sense. A um, little bit of transfer news. Burnley have agreed a £12 million fee with Stoke for Nathan Collins. Six foot four Irish centre back. Very, very talented player. Very, very promising. Good on the ball. Strong in the air. Will bulk out. He's only 20, just turned 20 this year. I think it's a hell of a signing, assuming Stoke don't find, or Burnley rather, don't find a way to mess it up. I think that's going to be a hell of a signing. I, I think he's very, very good. I think he's got the potential to play for, with respect, a bigger club again than Burnley in a couple of years. Uh, he is he is a tank, a giant of a human being. Um, Very, very impressed by Burnley going and getting that one done. And uh, it's good to see they look like they'll back Sean Dyche this summer. Hopefully that's not the last uh, incoming for for Burnley. Hopefully this is the start of a couple of players arriving because they could do with, with getting a few more in the door. I, I think his centre-back partner, Harry Suter, the young Scottish kid who plays for Australia now, I think he's also likely to be somebody that gets Premier League attention this summer. 6-6, really good on the ball, just a, a monster. Um, 
hilariously has scored six international goals in five international caps. Scored two against Nepal, two against Chinese Taipei, one against Chinese Taipei, and one against Jordan. Fair play. That is mental. Fair play. Um, right, we'll wrap up with the gossip and get done for the day. Barcelona president, this guy, this guy just does my head in. Johan Laporte dreams of pairing Cristiano Ronaldo with Lionel Messi next season and is ready to offer two players in exchange to persuade Juventus to sell the 36-year-old. Well, I just don't see Cristiano going to Barcelona, considering his history with Madrid. I just don't see it happening. Man City are ready to include Gabby Jesus and Raheem Sterling in any bid for Harry Kane, who Tottenham value in the region of 150 million. If I was, if I was Tottenham, I'd screw City to the wall on this. So I would say Raheem Sterling is probably a 70 million pound footballer, 26 pushing 27, a couple of years left in his contract. I know he had a bad season, but his three seasons prior to that were unbelievably good. Especially 17, 18, and 18, 19, he was incredible. He's probably a £70 million footballer. But in the deal, you beat that down. You get that down to he's worth £55 million. So now you want £95 million or, or £100 million and Raheem Sterling. America Laporte apparently wants out of City. He's sick sitting on the bench. He's probably a £50 million centre-back. Maybe he only worth 35 in this deal. So now you get Laporte and Sterling and, I don't know, 60, 65 million. You could do it a right wing back or a right back. Pedro Porro would be a really good one. He's probably worth 10 to 12 million. Maybe he's worth 5 million in the deal. Go and look at the players City own. Figure out who you want and try and get three or four of them and some cash. Rebuild your team as part of the deal. Don't just take the money and then try and buy bits and pieces like you did with the bail money. Because that went disastrously. Do this properly. Laporte, massive upgraded centre-back. Sterling doesn't replace Kane, but can give you 15 to 18 Premier League goals a season. If you have him and Nine and Son, that's two-thirds of your front three taken care of. Go and you find that number nine. Yusuf N. Naziri, 35, 40 million gets him from Sevilla. Job done. That's a front three. Then you get Endombele, Heusberg, Lacelso as your midfield three. Maybe you want a bit more of a defensive presence in there, a little bit more ball winning. Maybe Yangel Herrera, you get him from City in the deal. Endombele, Heusberg, Herrera, that's a midfield, that's a powerful midfield three. Poro at right back, Regulon left back. There's your natural width. Two lads that'll get forward. Toby and, and Laporte. I, I think Spurs would be stupid not to do. Now, I will say I did see a couple of journalists say that Tottenham need to just sell them. Just sell them. Why? Why should Daniel Levy just 
bow to Man City's demands or bow to Harry Kane. Harry Kane was happy to sign the six-year contract with the big pay rise when things were going well. Soon as things go a little bit difficult and not everything's great, not everything's not great, everybody's not phoning over you all the time. You want out because you want the easy life. Well, Harry Kane's had it easy at Tottenham. They've given him everything. They've given him goals he didn't score. He gets it easy with England. He keeps his place despite turning in nothing performances. Harry Kane needs to be made to work for it. Manchester United are making progress in their efforts to sign Pau Torres. I did say I think this is the one that gets done for them. I think they get Pau Torres uh, and move Harry Maguire to right centre-back, likely to help with his pace, because you can put Torres one side and Wan-Bissaka the other, and that will cover for Maguire's lack of pace. Atletico Madrid are interested in Arsenal's Hector Bellerin. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're selling... Trippier, you probably do need a right back in, but I wouldn't say they want him, no, to be honest. Juventus want to part ways with Aaron Ramsey. I'd imagine they do. He's on ridiculous money and he's not very good. Rafael Benitez is edging closer to the Tottenham, to the Everton job after further talks over the weekend, despite some fans protesting. He was on the verge last week. Now he's edging closer. Crystal Palace have held positive talks with Lucien Favre over potentially replacing Roy Hodgson, but could face competition from Everton over his signature. Um, Everton's the easier job and probably you know the bigger club. Palace is a difficult job. Palace is, is a lot of work this summer. Um, if Favre gets offered both, I'd imagine he'll take the Everton one, to be honest. Atalanta are expected to hold off interest from AC Milan and Roma in Italian midfielder Matteo Pessina and are set to offer the 24-year-old a new contract. Um, I think it'd be kind of funny to sell him back to Milan. Considering Milan sold him for $1.6 and I'd imagine you'd probably get the better part of $20 million from now. You know, I don't think it'd be a bad deal. He's a, he's a good player, but he's not irreplaceable for them. Leeds, Southampton, Aston Villa and Burnley are all interested in Wales fullback Nico Williams with the 20-year-old keen to leave Liverpool. Now, the figures of about 10 million been floated. I think if anyone pays 10 million for them, they need to be um, questioned as to you know what they're doing with themselves. But good for him if he wants to go and play somewhere. Good for Liverpool if they can get decent money in for him. He, he won't make the grade at Liverpool, but he can be a good player for, for other clubs. I think he's... I think he's still a championship-level player, but I do think he's got Premier League potential. He needs to play. So, Villa, he's not going to start. Southampton, he's not going to start. Leeds, he's not going to start. Burnley, I don't see him starting for Burnley. But, Dyche is really good at improving defenders, especially fullbacks. So, Burnley could be the best fit for him. And their right-backs who'd be ahead of him are pushing the tail end of their careers. So that might be the one where he's got the shortest kind of wait time to get into the team. Southampton have Walker Peters. He's early to mid-20s. Villa have Maddie Cash. Same situation. Uh, Luke Ayling. I don't actually know what age Luke Ayling is, but he is um, he's 30. But Luke Ayling's in incredible shape, and I, I don't see... 
him disappearing anytime soon. I'd say he's probably still got another two to three good years in him. And I think if Leeds want to replace him, I think they'll aim higher than than Nico Williams, to be honest. Um, that would be my guess on it. Wolves are interested in Leicester keeper Danny Ward, who is impressed playing for Wales. He has impressed playing for Wales, to be fair to him. He's probably been the best goalkeeper thus far through three three games. Now, I say best. He's performed the best because he's had quite a bit to do. He hasn't been the best goalkeeper, obviously, but he's played the best is what I would say. Um, Antonio Rudiger wants to stay at Chelsea next season, even though the club are yet to open talks over an extension to his current contract, which expires next summer. Makes sense for him. If he's not going to get the right offer this summer, stick around, see out your contract and head off next year on a free. You'll get a decent deal at that point. Bayern Munich have joined Everton, AC Milan and Inter Milan in the race to sign 25-year-old Denzel Dumfries. Uh, That's kind of like when the real gangster shows up. Um, when, you know, little wannabe tough guys are shouting at each other, then a real gangster shows up. If Bayern want him, Bayern will get him. Everton won't be in the mix. AC Milan don't do things properly. And Inter Milan are a financial mess. So, yeah, if if they want him, I think that's what will happen. Lille's French midfielder, Boubacari Samari, will have a medical at Leicester in the next 10 days before signing a five-year contract. That's a rather rather long period of time to to speculate about. Uh, Liverpool have no plans to sell Costa Simicus this summer, despite the 25-year-old only making seven appearances. Yeah, he only made seven appearances because Van Dijk got hurt, and Klopp didn't want to be changing the entire defence. Roma are in talks with Wolves over a deal for Rui Patricio with the Premier League club, wanting between 10 and 13 million. This is nonsense. They either want 10 or they want 13. They don't want between... Like... 10.5 10.5 is between 10 and 13. So they don't want between 10 and 13. They want 13. That's what they want. Let's be really honest with this. And they want 13. Whether they get it or not, I don't know. But they want 13. Um, Southampton's England midfielder, James Ward-Prowse, is interested in joining Aston Villa this summer. I mean, really... Football Insider has learned. I just... A recruitment source has told Football Insider. Like, this is just such trash. Football Insider 247.com Wayne VC, A spoofer. An absolute spoofer. This, This just seems to be his website where he plays at being in the know about all clubs about every transfer it's magnificent stuff if anybody is bored and wants to you know take the time to go back through all of the football insider inside news and let me know what they've actually gotten right over the years i'd be very very curious Like, just today, they've got news about Leeds signing a player from Birmingham. Leeds signing, uh, sorry, selling a player to Blackpool. 
Brentford and Salford City uh, doing a potential deal where Aaron Presley would go on loan to Salford. Uh, Jack Grealish info from the Chelsea side. Like, I'm, I'm not being funny, but you don't have insiders at all these clubs. Nobody does. It's just nonsense. Absolute nonsense. If you see anyone calling themselves a football insider, just tell them they're a spoofer. Um, finally, Fulham boss Scott Parker is close to finally finalising the termination of his contract with the England midfielder expected to take over at Bournemouth. It's a very Bournemouth type appointment. Um, Fulham just need to get rid of him and get a new manager in. It looks like they want Steve Cooper from Swansea. But look, if they don't get it done soon, it might not get done at all. Right, we will leave it there for today. There will be no podcast tomorrow. Uh, terribly sorry, but life gets in the way sometimes. So there'll be no show tomorrow. Uh, we'll be back Thursday, obviously. Uh, so enjoy yourself. Enjoy your day off from me. Guy can enjoy his day off from me as well. Uh, thank you to Guy as always. And I will see you Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.